open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, let me say a special word of greeting to our visitors who are with us this morning. Uh, we want you to feel welcome here. We love having visitors, and we hope that you will be blessed uh, by your time with us this morning. Now, let me also mention that if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please feel free to use one provided uh, from the seats in front of you. And if you want to use one of those Bibles, you'll find our passage this morning on page 855. This morning, we are just going to begin to get introduced to this book, uh, focusing this morning on the author, Luke. Who, who is this man called Luke? Uh, if you weren't with us last Sunday night, let me just remind you that we've been in Romans for a long time, and we're not done with Romans, and uh, we're going to be picking up Romans on Sunday nights in just a few weeks. Uh, because we're getting into some really, really interesting, nitty-gritty, practical issues about Christians in government, Christians in conscience. And our Sunday night services are a little more informal. They allow for questions at the end. And so we're going to be covering that part of Romans on Sunday nights beginning in just a few weeks. And so we're starting this morning the Gospel of Luke. And let's begin by reading the first four verses. The first four verses. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The year is 57 AD. Uh, it's now been almost 25 years since the Lord Jesus Christ died and rose again and ascended into heaven. And in the uh, Macedonian city of Philippi, atop the Aegean Sea, among the springtime sailors boarding their ships and launching their boats, we find the Apostle Paul. Uh, the Apostle Paul is the end of his third and his final missionary journey. And it is now time for Paul to go to Jerusalem. Uh, Paul knows what awaits him in Jerusalem when he arrives. God has already shown Paul what he must suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. And yet, when Paul boards this ship to Jerusalem, he's not alone. A man named Luke boards the ship with him. Now, these two men have traveled together before, but only for a brief time. This time, they're going to be together quite a bit longer. Uh, Paul and Luke sail together for five days. They get off the ship at the port city of Troas, and they minister to the Christians there for one week. In fact, it's here that a young man named Eutychus falls out of a window and dies. And Luke is on hand as a witness as he sees the apostle Paul, by a miracle of God, raise Eutychus back to life. 
Well, next comes the city of Miletus. And there Paul meets for the last time with the elders of the church in Ephesus. And Luke is there as a witness to it all. It's a moving, emotional, tearful farewell. Uh, Luke says there was weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being most sorrowful of all because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And then Paul comes to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he visits with James, the brother of Jesus. He's welcomed by the Christians there. And then, just as God had promised, Paul is arrested. And Paul finds himself imprisoned in Caesarea Maritime, right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And there he remains until 59 AD, cramped in this seaside ocean cell for two years. But he's not alone. Luke continues to visit Paul as he is able. Luke seeks to care for Paul. Uh, We think this because when Paul was finally sent in chains on a ship to Rome to be put on trial, Luke is still with him. Luke makes the trek with him. Luke is alongside of him. When the shipwreck happens and they wash ashore on the island of Malta, Luke is there. And when the book of Acts ends and Paul is in Rome awaiting trial, Luke is still there. In Colossians 4.14, which Paul writes from Rome, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. So Luke was with him when he wrote Colossians. Philemon 24, also written from Rome, Paul lists some of his fellow workers. And one of his fellow workers that he lists is Luke. And so Luke was with Paul when he wrote Philemon. Most pointedly in 2 Timothy 4.11, it's the last scriptural letter that Paul wrote while in Roman chains, Paul writes these words, Luke alone is with me. Only Luke is with me. So here's our author of this third gospel, this fellow worker alongside Paul. Now, hopefully you know the Gospel of Luke is part one of a two-volume set, right? Luke and Acts. Uh, Both are written by the same author. Both are dedicated to the same person called Theophilus. It's clear from the beginning of both books. Now, Luke never outright says he's the author of these books, but the evidence is overwhelming, and the fact was uncontested even in the earliest periods of Christian history. Uh, We have several examples of men from the early church ascribing this gospel to Luke and even telling us a little bit about this man, Luke. So one example is this paragraph uh, written uh, at least as early as 175 A.D. from the history that was available at that time. So here's a little bit of what church history tells us about this man called Luke. It says Luke was an Antiochian of Syria. A physician by profession. He was a disciple of the apostles and later accompanied Paul until the latter's martyrdom. He served the Lord without distraction, having neither wife nor children. And at the age of 84, he fell asleep in Boeotia, full of the Holy Spirit. 
While there were already gospels previously in existence, the one according to Matthew, written in Judea, and the one according to Mark in Italy, Luke, moved by the Holy Spirit, composed the whole of this gospel in parts of Achaia. In his prologue, he makes this point very clear, that other gospels had been written before his, and that it was necessary to expound to the Gentile believers the accurate account of the dispensation so that they would not be perverted by Jewish fables, nor be deceived by heretical and vain imaginations, and thus err from the truth. And afterwards, this same Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And so that's what's been handed down to us from church history about this man. So what what do we know? If we're going to be studying this book of Luke for a long time, what do we know about this man, Luke? Let's note four facts, okay? So first, Luke was a Gentile. Luke was a Gentile. We know this not only from church history, but from the New Testament itself. Uh, We already saw that Luke was with Paul in Rome when he wrote the book of Colossians. Well, at that time, there were still a few other workers with Paul. And to listen to Colossians 4, 10 through 11, just two verses before he mentions the fact that Luke is with him. Paul says this, Colossians 4, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. So what he does is Paul lists those who are with him who are of the circumcision, who are Jews, and then two verses later mentions the fact that Luke is with him. So Luke is not a Jew. Luke is a Gentile. Church history tells us that Luke was from Syria, from the city of Antioch. Um, If you picture the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, you have Israel along the coast in the south, And you have Syria along the coast in the north. Antioch was in northern Syria, very close to the most northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, the Bible never explicitly says that Luke was from Antioch. But it does seem very, very likely. Uh, Most scholars point out that in the book of Acts, Luke seems to pay a lot of attention to the city of Antioch. Uh, They suggest that Luke puts the spotlight on the city of Antioch because it's his hometown. Personally, I think even if Luke wasn't from Antioch, he still would have paid special attention to that city. In the book of Acts, it was in Antioch that believers were first called Christians. It was in Antioch that Paul and Barnabas were sent out as missionaries. But there are other good reasons to think that Antioch was actually Luke's hometown. Uh, In Acts 6... When the church in Jerusalem is growing rapidly and we have the selection of the first deacons, seven men are chosen. And one of those first deacons in Jerusalem is a man named Nicolaus. And we're told that he was a proselyte from Antioch. So a proselyte was a Gentile who had become convinced of the Jewish religion and had adopted the Jewish religion as their own. Uh, Proselytes were not ethnic Jews, but they had declared themselves worshipers of the Jewish God. So for this man, Nicolaus, who's becoming a deacon, his path was that he had started out probably as a Gentile pagan 
Syrian. He had become convinced of the Jewish God. And then having become convinced of the Jewish God, he became convinced of Jesus as the Messiah and had become a Christian. Now that's important because if Nicolaus was a Christian proselyte from Antioch, maybe there were others. Well, then we get to Acts 11 and we learn that after the persecution of Stephen, after Stephen is martyred, the Christians in Jerusalem scatter to other places. And listen to this. This is Acts 11, verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So outside of Jerusalem, where did the gospel first go to Gentiles? Answer, Antioch. Where was the first Gentile church established? Answer, Antioch. And so it would be no surprise to us to learn that the first Gentile leaders of the Christian church came from Antioch. So if we, if we did not have church history, if all we had was the Bible, and we had to guess, here's Luke as a Christian leader Gentile, okay, early in the church, and we had to guess where he was from, Antioch would be at the top of our list. The fact that church history confirms that only makes us more sure. Okay, enough history lesson. Well, what's the big deal about Luke being a Gentile? Why is that important? What does that have to do with you and with me? Well, picture the people of God from every generation as a tree. And the trunk of that tree is almost completely Jewish, right? It starts with, with Adam and Eve at the roots and Noah. They weren't Jewish. There were no Jews back then, right? But then you get to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... And the trunk begins, and you've got this Jewish tree that's being formed. And then suddenly you get to the day of Pentecost. And suddenly springing from this Jewish trunk are branches, right? Branches of all kinds. Suddenly the gospel is being heard and believed by Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Mesopotamians and Cappadocians and Pontians and Asians and Phrygians and Pamphylians and Egyptians and Libyans and people from Rome. And those are just the ones that heard Peter preach at Pentecost. Okay? So immediately at Pentecost, you see the gospel going from being a mainly... Um, you see the church of Jesus going from mainly being a Jewish people to suddenly branching out into all kinds of tongues and tribes and nations. Um, since the day of Pentecost, the gospel has gone into all the world. Uh, we've seen the branches of the tree become more numerous. We just prayed for Drew Moss working right now with what the V tribe, as he calls it, there in Cameroon, seeking to see the people of God one uh, out of that tribe. Even in the Old Testament, there were some Gentiles included with the Jews. Rahab was a Gentile. Esther was a Gentile. Uh, we're told that when the Israelites left Egypt, some of the Egyptians joined with Israel then. But by and large, in the Old Testament, the people of God were Jewish. So why does it matter that Luke is a Gentile? Because God ordained for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a savior, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. And one of the ways that he showed this 
is that God ordained for a significant portion of the New Testament scriptures to be written by a Gentile. If I were to ask you which author wrote more of the New Testament than any other author, who would you say? You might think Paul. After all, Paul wrote so many of our New Testament books. Paul wrote Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, the letters to Timothy, Titus, Philemon, maybe Hebrews. Uh, even with all of those letters, Paul wrote. If you take everything that we know that Paul wrote, okay, he still wrote less than Luke. Luke the Gentile wrote more of the New Testament than any other person. Uh, Luke and Acts by themselves make up more than a quarter of the New Testament. I think that's significant, that a Gentile authored more than a quarter of the New Testament. Mount Hermon, God designed the scriptures this way as yet another confirmation of one of the central themes that we're going to see Jesus preach and we're going to hear taught again and again in the Gospel of Luke. Namely, the gospel is for everyone. That the Lord Jesus Christ is available to any who will come to him and believe Ethnicity is no obstacle to grace. Your family background is no obstacle to salvation. That any who will come to Jesus and believe on him will find that he is willing to save. Indeed, we'll find he was drawing them all along. Already, the number of Gentile believers now far surpasses the number of Jewish believers from every century in history. God worked through the Jews to bring the Messiah to the world. But today, the people of God in every generation, both those, the church triumphant and the church militant, the people of God are a multi-ethnic, diverse, global people. No one is barred from salvation because of the country they come from or the color of their skin or their ethnic history. And that's going to be hit home again and again in this gospel. Okay, so first, Luke was a Gentile. What else can we say about Luke? Second, he was a loyal friend to Paul. He was a loyal friend to Paul. Especially in the last years of his life, it is Luke who we consistently find by Paul's side. Uh, when Acts ends, it's 62 AD. Paul is awaiting trial in Rome. Most think that Paul was actually released from his imprisonment in Rome. That he extended his missionary work, perhaps as far as Spain, over two years. He wrote 1 Timothy from Macedonia. He writes Titus from Nicopolis. But by 64 AD, under Emperor Nero, Paul was back under arrest in Rome. And this time he won't be released. And sometime between 64 and 67 AD, Paul was martyred under Emperor Nero. It's during that last imprisonment. That Paul writes 2 Timothy. And it is there at the end of his life that Paul writes those words. Luke alone is with me. In fact, listen to a little bit more of that passage. Hear what Paul is saying as he writes from this Roman prison. He says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Now certainly Timothy is dear to Paul's heart. That's why he's writing to him and saying, please come see me. 
But he tells Timothy that all these workers that were once around him, they've now gone. Some have left Paul because they're doing mission work. They're spreading the gospel in other places. At least one, Paul says, left him because he fell in love with this present world. But Luke is there. Luke is Paul's companion in Rome. And this tells us that Luke remained a true friend to Paul. And I say that because when you look at what the Bible says about friendship, the theme that seems to rise above all the others is the theme of loyalty. True friends remain loyal to each other, committed to each other, and they do not forsake one another. Uh, True friends are not fair weather friends. Here when the weather is fair, but gone when the dark clouds come. No, true friends are with you through the good and through the bad, like, say, a Roman imprisonment. True friends do not forsake one another in a time of need. So when you look at the book of Proverbs, for example, and you see what wisdom that book has to offer about friendship, this is the message you find again and again. Just listen to a few. Proverbs 17, 7. 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Friend loves at all times. 1824, a man of many companions comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Ultimately, our truest friend is Jesus Christ, who has promised to be with his people to the end of the age. Uh, Jesus will never forsake us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus is with us now by his spirit. He will be with us forever in person. Um, He is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. But Jesus is also the model of real friendship for us. It is not having many companions that matters. It's having real friends. Even if there's just one, if they're quality, if they're true, if they will stick with you through the storm. Proverbs 19.4, wealth brings many friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. What's the message there? Poverty often tests friendships and most friendships fail the test. A man who becomes poor may find that he is deserted even by his one and only friend. Meanwhile, the man who becomes wealthy will find that people want to be his friend. This is a kind of worldly friendship, a fickle friendship, a fair weather friendship. And we're taught to be aware and wary of that. Proverbs 19, verse 6, many seek the favor of a generous man. Everyone is a friend of the man who gives gifts. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. It's the same lesson. Most friendships in this world are not genuine friendships. Most of those people that unbelievers think they can count on are not really hanging around them for their benefit, but for their own benefit. In other words, once your friends can no longer use you to get what they need from you, then they will be done with you. Christians are called to be different in our friendship. Christians are called to be distinct in our friendship. An unbeliever should find that it is those friends of theirs who are Christians that stick with them even when it's hard, that stick with them even when others forsake them. Uh, Proverbs 27, 27, 10, do not forsake your friend and your father's friend. 
Do not go to your brother's house on the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Again, it's that theme of loyalty. Be there for your friend in need. Don't forsake them. And so again and again, we have this laid out for us in Proverbs. Real friendship is about stick to Real friendship is about sticking with one another. And that is modeled for us in what the New Testament seems to teach us about this man, Luke. He was a man who stuck with Paul and was a model of true friendship to him. Okay, so we have Luke. He's a Gentile. Second, we know from the Bible that Luke was a friend to Paul and a true friend. Number three, Luke was a physician. A physician. Uh, We mentioned that in Philemon, Luke is called a fellow worker by Paul. But what kind of work Luke was doing is not very clear. We never see Luke preach a sermon. We never see Luke lead a Bible study or serve as an elder in a church. He may have done some of those things, but we're never told of Luke doing anything like that. The only thing we're really told about Luke, especially by Paul, is that he is a beloved physician. He is a loved doctor. Uh, When Paul writes to the Christians in Colossae, it appears that this is how they knew him. Uh, They knew Luke as a beloved physician. It seems at least very likely that Luke was continuing to function as a physician, even among perhaps other labors alongside Paul. Now, we can only speculate about what this might have looked like. But if Christians found themselves shut off from medical care because of their faith... You can see how loved Luke would have been to them. Here was a Christian physician. Here was a doctor who would care for them, despite the fact that many of these Christians were now seen as outcasts in society. It seems likely that one of the reasons that Luke remained with Paul, even towards the end of his life, was that he ministered to Paul not only through encouragement and fellow labor, but that Luke ministered to Paul as a doctor. Imagine what Paul's body must have been like by this time. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that he had been beaten countless times, often near death. Uh, Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Some people died receiving the 39 lashes one time. Paul's body had endured the 39 lashes five times. Imagine the scars on his back. Imagine the long-term damage to his body. Paul says, three times I was beaten with rods. One time I was stoned. Uh, He doesn't go on, but Luke tells us in Acts about when he was stoned. He was left for dead. The people thought they had finished the work. It was really only by the miraculous provision of God that, that Paul survived that. Imagine the gashes and the broken bones that come By having rocks thrown at you, Paul's body had endured that. He says, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. In light of all of that, it would be rather shocking if Luke, the beloved physician, did not sense some sort of calling from God to use his knowledge and skills to care physically for Paul. And to use what God had given him to minister to Paul in that way. We mentioned that Paul was kept in prison in Caesarea Maritime for two years. I think there's a reason Luke was likely keeping in close contact with Paul during that time. Here is Paul 
with his broken body living in absolutely horrid conditions. Um, if you go to Caesarea Maritime today, you can see where they think the cell was where Paul was kept. You could fit three of them on this stage. Okay? I mean, we're talking about a very small space where he lived in chain for, for two years. You can imagine Luke going back and forth, caring for Paul, making sure that his health was being upheld. And then, as we've just heard about in recent weeks in our scripture readings, remember the shipwreck? And remember when the, the people, they, they crashed onto the island of Malta? And here is Paul as a prisoner, but Luke is with him. And you can imagine Luke going around, even to the guards, even to the Roman soldiers, and saying, let me tend to your wounds. Let me care for you. So what is the lesson for us about Luke being a physician? Well, make sure you get this. I think this is very important. The mission of God is not a mission only carried out by pastors and missionaries. All Christians are to participate in the Great Commission. And one way we are to do this is by stewarding our professions for the glory of God. If you are a doctor, be a Christian doctor and look for every opportunity to use your skills and your training to honor God. If you're a teacher, be a Christian teacher and look for every opportunity to glorify Jesus in your profession. If you're a businessman, if you're a salesman, if you're an attorney, an engineer, an accountant, a nurse, an administrative assistant, whatever God has brought you into as far as your professional life, use that for the mission that God has given us. I am very thankful that during his time as president of the International Mission Board, David Platt has been ringing the bell for Christian professionals to leave America and to go overseas. Yes, we know we need to send missionaries and we need to send church planters to people groups where the gospel has not yet come to them. But we need more than missionaries and church planters. Those missionaries need help. The Pauls need their Lukes. And Platt has been calling for Christian professionals to go overseas and to do the same work they're doing in America over in other places where Christians are few and where your witness can be strong. Moreover, you may be able to be a help and a support to that missionary who's trying to start a church in that community. And you can be there to provide encouragement and help when that missionary needs it, all the while drawing a paycheck from the work that you're doing, which sustains you as a helper to that missionary in that foreign place. If our allegiance to our homeland keeps us from going where we can be most useful to God, then that allegiance is sinful. I think at least once a year, maybe once a month, we should stop and ask ourselves, am I at the place where God would have me to be, where I can be of maximum usefulness for his glory and the salvation of souls? Do you ever stop and ask yourself that question? Am I living in the place? Am I doing what God would have me do where my life is, is bringing about maximum usefulness to God? If you're convinced that this is where God wants you to serve, I want you to see how vital you are. Churches don't grow and the gospel doesn't spread primarily through pastors. Pastors are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's you who are the ministers, who in your professions and in your workplaces and in your other community involvements get to shine for Christ and to have those opportunities 
It's in your professions that you'll often have contact with unbelievers. It's in your professions that there may come opportunities to share Jesus with them or or at least to invite them to church. Um, Pastors can work to equip you. Pastors pray for you. But it will often be through your vocations and the people that brings across your path through the skills that God has given you that you will have a great opportunity to reach the lost and to care for the people around us. So yes, work with all your might for the glory of God. Be a witness in the way you honor your boss or your manager and the way you treat those under your authority. But don't stop there and think you've been a witness. Your witness is not complete until you actually open up your mouth and talk about Jesus with others. Uh, Your witness is not complete until you've given folks an opportunity to either come to church and learn more or even better, maybe meet you at Bojangles and and have a biscuit together and let you share more about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I guess what I'm asking about Herman is this. Are you seizing the opportunities that God has given you through the skills and the training and the profession that God has brought into your life to show people the gospel and to show people the glory of Christ? Are you on mission when you're at work? We're done. I'm just going to mention this last point because we're going to talk about it next time. Fourth and finally, Luke was a historian. Luke was a historian. Luke was one who carefully researched and recorded historical events. And this two-volume work, Luke and Acts, is the great product of his labors. Uh, Inspired by the Holy Spirit of God... Luke gave us the fullest picture of the life of Jesus of all the Gospels. And Luke gave us our only scriptural account of the beginnings of the early church. And so next time, we're going to start working our way through these first four verses. And we're going to see what they tell us about Luke as a historian and about this Gospel that he wrote. Let's pray. Father... We thank you for this man called Luke. We thank you for the way that you worked through his life so many years ago to impact ours. That by your Holy Spirit, through his mind and through his hands, we have this gospel. And Father, what a gospel it is. The parable of the prodigal son. The teachings of Christ. The record of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Luke, more than any of the other gospel writers, tells us about the virgin birth and about Jesus coming into the world. Father, we are so grateful for this gospel of Luke and we're so grateful for this book of Acts and we're so thankful for this man that you used to bring these to us. Thank you that he was a Gentile and that you teach us through him that the gospel is for all. Thank you, Father, that that he models true friendship for us. Oh, let us see in Luke something greater, a picture of Christ's friendship for us. Father, let us rest in the reality that Christ has made us his friends through faith. Father, we ask that you would help us to think through how to wield our callings for your glory. How can we use the skills, the training, the vocations you've brought our way for your honor? Help us, Father, even this week, to think through and see those opportunities. Father, we're a small church. It hurts any time we lose members. But Father, we would rejoice 
if we were sending members overseas to partner with missionaries? Father, could it be that you're calling someone in here to leave the comfort of Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, to go live in some hard place and to do the same things they're doing here there for the glory of Christ? Father, if that would be your will, would you make that clear to them? Would you work in their conscience and not let them rest until they're ready to move for your honor? Father, we ask that you would prepare our hearts that as we embark on the study of this book, that we would be ready to behold the glory of Christ on every page. Thank you for his love for us. Help us to walk worthy of the wondrous grace that we have received. We ask it in Jesus' name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.